name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Hello, hello, hello everybody and welcome to this month's Talking Bat An amazing guest this month, someone whom I have known, I think, almost, or at least known of, almost all, if not all, of my bat-related career activities, however you want to describe that. John Haddo, how are you doing today? Hello, I'm fine, yes. Good to see you. Likewise, likewise with yourself. Feeling comfortable? Are you regretting having agreed to do this or are you looking forward to it <laughs> uh, a bit of both <laughs> a bit of both i'm always happy to t- talk about bats right okay sounds good i'll ask you again at the end to see how it was right, you right. know, about an hour from now <laughs> so everybody uh john haddo uh he has his own wildlife consultancy called auditus wildlife consultancy and a very highly respected bat worker, researcher, trainer, consultant, goodness knows, probably a lot of other things, first became interested in bats in the 1970s, was a biology teacher for a long part of his uh, time uh, whilst working, but he took early retirement from being a biology teacher, not retiring from doing work, but he took early retirement in 2005 and it was around about that time when Oritus Wildlife Consultancy uh, gained more momentum. He's also a Nature Scott bat worker and a previous winner, 2006, of the Bat Conservation Trust Peak Guest Award, based in Scotland, but far travelled, as we will see in the course of today. John, any particular highlights looking at that list of stuff? I mean, we're going to cover some of it anyway. But uh, no, biology teacher, as supposed to ecological well, I, consultant. I, was, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was. I really enjoyed being a teacher, but I was a teacher for thirty years. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I didn't go straight from university into teaching uh, because I was doing some other work, some research work before the, before starting as a teacher. But um, no, I, I, I enjoyed being a teacher, but. Um, as I explained to you that um, when it came to um, 2005, I was actually offered earlier time because they were reorganizing the, the management structure in schools. And I had been, already been doing um, consultancy work. And it was, you know, you can't teach teenagers and try and do that surveys as well uh, and do both of them any, you know, to any high standard. Um, so I was very happy to do that. And actually, I started Oritus Wildlife in 2005. Um, okay. uh, yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Wow. And I'm going to I'm going to say this now. OK, um, just to get out of the way. In a moment, what we're going to do, folks, is we're going to, first of all, start in the present. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Scottish Lysless Project. And then after that, we're going to go into a bit of a historical perspective. But I think I think now would be a really good uh, moment right, for me to uh, say to John, John, what were you doing on the 17th of June 1995? 
You probably don't recall, yeah? I don't recall, no. No, okay. Well, this is what you were doing, okay? Uh, you were doing a national training course for the Scottish Conservation Projects Trust, yeah? And that was, uh, although I'd been doing a lot of bats before that, uh, that was the very first formal bat training course I ever attended. And uh, and it, I think it was in Balallan House in Stirling. I don't know if you remember it. Um, yes. Um, I mean, of course, the, the names change. It's no longer, there's no longer such an organisation. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, that was their, that was their headquarters. Um, and uh, no, I, I, I did, I've done quite a few courses, but I don't actually remember <laughs> that one. Well, to be fair, so, so have I, but I, uh, but I, I remember that one specifically because yeah. it was the very first one. It was the very first one I'd been to. And right. and John, seriously, um, you know, we, we don't we don't interact a lot with each other, but we have done a, a significant points over the last twenty odd years. And I just want to say thank you for because uh, you've given me a lot of support and encouragement and inspiration and stuff like that over the time that I've been involved with BATS, and I know you have for many, many, many other people as well. So I just want to say thank you for that, okay? Yeah. That's very kind of you. No, not, not at all. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, no, it's just uh, it's just nice, and I've been wanting to do this, I've been wanting to do this chat for some time, and it's just been really nice that, uh, that we're doing it today. But anyway, first of all, let's talk about the Scottish Leislers Project. You want to just tell us a little bit about where the idea came from, what you do? Yeah, if, if we start with um, Liza's bat, I mean, I, I know that a lot of people that watch this will will know that the Liza's bat is the smaller of the two Nicholas species in the UK. Uh, they probably also know that in the UK, as you go further north, you, we lose species because you know we're at the edge of their distribution. So, you know, we only have nine or 10 species in Scotland, um, but 18 in the UK as a whole. Um, and, and Liza's bat is, um, as I say, it's, a, it's the smaller cousin of the noctule. The noctule is a, is a, is a nice big bat. It, it's um, uh, 25, 30 grams, just to give you an idea. And that's, that's five or six times the weight of a pivostrel, for example. And, and uh, Eliza's bat is about half the size. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's a roughly 15 gram bat, uh, still quite a bit bigger than a pipistrel, um, but uh, you know, it's a, a smaller bat. And it's, it's the way it, um, well, where it lives in the UK and Ireland isn't fully understood yet. Um, and certainly 10, 15 years ago, we knew much less about about these bats. I mean, the Liza's bats, um, they are found throughout UK up into, you know, we now know up to the sort of central belt of Scotland. Um, and they're found quite extensively in, in, in Ireland, um, where they seem to be quite keen on, on forming big nursery roosts in houses. They don't do that very often. Uh, they seem to be very adaptable bats. Uh, for example, they do seem to be the commoner of the two Nicholas bats in London, for example. But you know exactly where they're found in, in the UK is it's it's, it's patchy knowledge, um, and I think one one of the problems is that their echolocation calls 
the two species are very similar. And until we had, you know, really until we had uh, sort of sophisticated equipment that we could allow, that allowed us to look at recordings on c- computers, this sort of thing, it was not always very, we're not always very good at distinguishing them. So um, it tended to be that when you heard a Nicholas sound, it was a nocturne. And uh, in Scotland, um, although, you know, nocturnes and averted comments were found in, we were recorded in different places, but it was always assumed to be nocturnes. Um, so, so my interest goes back to actually 1988, when the first Lysa's bat was identified in Newton Stewart, when it was found in a, in a sink in a, in a primary school in January. So, you know, hibernation time. Um, and uh, and I, I actually went down to see it because the uh, Peter Hopkins, who had, who was the, he was a, another biology teacher. Um, and I think he was the head of the department of biology in, in Newton Stewart um, secondary school. And, uh, and I knew him and, and uh, I went down to have a look at this bat, you know, you know this is a Liza's bat. And Newton Stewart is at the south end of, of the Cree Valley. The Cree Valley and Glen Truel, um, because of a, a, a sort of forestry organization there, they had quite a number of bat boxes. And they, these bat boxes were checked. So this is, you know, 80s, 90s. These bat boxes were check, checked in the autumn and they would find lifeless bats in them. Okay. Yeah. And until, so until 2009, 2010, this was the only area where they'd definitely been identified from. Yeah. And it always seemed peculiar to me that, you know, there was one valley in the southwest of Scotland where you've got Liza's bats, you know, why were they not anywhere else? So I I was always a bit suspicious about this. Um, And when I had a contract uh, to survey a school down there, which had had Liza's bats on occasion, um, the school was was a a flat roof school and needed a, a new roof needed a proper roof, right? Yeah. Um, so it had to be surveyed because they need to get a license because this was the only building in the whole of Scotland that had ever been recorded as having a roost of Liza's bats. Yeah, so so it's potentially very sensitive then. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So we did the survey in 2009 over the summer, uh, did you know extensive surveys and established that, yes, there was occasionally Liza's bats going there, you know, using it, but there was no evidence of a nursery roost. There may have been in the past, you know, maybe in the, the 80s, 90s earlier, there, there had been, but um, I think the, the building had, parts of the building had sort of deteriorated a bit and, uh, you know, no longer suitable for nursery roost. Anyway, where were they? You know, where was this nursery roost? So that's, that's what stimulated me to start in 2010 uh, to try and investigate this. And we started by... Uh, in the summer, going to uh, some of the bat boxes that were in the in the, the woodland, um, and we found Liza's bats. But as it turned out, they they were um, territorial males. Okay. And so you know we we radio tracked them, and uh, we, I think we radio tracked three different males, um, plus a female, but she wasn't breeding that summer. Um, and the males had their little territories. I mean, little, I mean, uh, around about a kilometre as far as they travelled from their roosts. And they used a number of roosts 
um, it's very very obvious that you know if you went to a, went to a, a bat box and and caught one of these bats and put a put a tag on him, he never went back there. You know, okay. he would yeah. he would use uh, um, which was you know interesting because he would use a variety of other tree roosts and perhaps other bat boxes as well. But um, uh, it was one of the things I very quickly learned about radio tracking is that these bats, are, it's not a passive study. No, you know, you are, yeah. you are interacting with these bats. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. you, you will know this, yeah. uh, Neil, that, uh, you know, and uh, they will, they learn, they learn to associate people um, with uh, bright lights, uh, with the, the sound of the, the beeping from a, a, a receiver, for, for a, you know, a radio tag and things like that. And so if, you have to be very careful if you're getting anywhere near them. You know, you may be able to follow them from a distance, but they are aware of you, you know. Anyway, that was, that was the start of it. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your case, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. So then I started thinking about, you know, well, where are these bats? And um, started I started looking at recordings of, of bats from other parts of Scotland and finding, you know, recordings that were put down as nocturnal were actually lysless bats. Yeah. So okay. it went, so the following year, we um, uh, we went to Killeen, Killeen Country Park in Ayrshire, uh, where I had been there years before and had actually been there with a group, for, you know, looking for bats at nights with a, you know, a basic heterodyne bat detector and picking up nocturnals. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe they are not nocturnal, they're, they're lysless bats. And so that's why we went back there in the summer of 2011 with a nice... Uh, uh, you know, nice group through the um, through a SWT training scheme actually, um, and uh, we caught bats and very quickly found we had a, a nursery roost um, where the bats were these bats were coming from, and um, the, the nursery roost. I think we, we counted uh, around about that time. I think the maximum was thirty three. Later on in the summer. It was into the 40s, uh, presumably with some youngsters as well. They did move around, and we we did that in over two summers, two summer sessions. Uh, so the following summer as well, um, when we caught five females from one of the trees and and followed them and learned how they actually they do move around. They split up, the colony splits up, amalgamates. Um, you know, when, particularly when the, the young bats are very, very small, they can move them around more. Um, and we had, I think, um, 14 different tree roofs, all in Killeen Country Park, wow. were recorded yeah. during these two years. So it was obviously an important site for them. Um, and, and we got an idea of how far they went. They, went, they would fly three, four kilometres to forage, mainly to the southwest they never went north for some reason they all went to the southwest interestingly after we, we 
one of the places they were foraging was over um, the golf course, which okay. is now Trump Turnberry. Yeah. But okay. it was just Turnberry then. And uh, <laughs> we were wandering about there in the middle of the night. And um, I think uh, we might not have the same freedom if we did that today. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, so we had established that was our first knowledge of a, a nursery roost. And the other thing, as they were doing, it was gathering information of where the bats were. And so th there was a pattern that they did seem to be, um, yeah, Liza's bats were distributed over west of Scotland and southwest of Scotland, but not in the east. Yeah. Um, Nocturals, by contrast, are mainly in the east, with the occasional one turning up in the west. Uh, right about Dumfries, as you probably know, yeah. there's, a, there's quite a lot of nocturals. And um, I remember actually with you f finding a, a tree roost uh, near right. Castle yeah. Douglas. Yeah. That's so that area. That 2006, I think that yes. was. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So that area, um, definitely nocturals dominate. But otherwise, it seems to be that the, the um, M. M74 yeah. is the dividing line, so that you know most most of the uh, mostly the um, lysers are west of the M74 and nocturals are east of the M74. Why? I'm waiting for somebody to discover a, a good reason for it. But um, okay. anyway, so after that, the, another place where um, the country, countryside rangers had good knowledge of nocturals yeah. was Arran. And so yeah. Yeah. we went to Arran in the summer and we found that Arran was a good a good site for um, males. Um, yeah, this if the photograph bottom left, I think it was the first lifeless yeah. bat um, found in Arran. Yeah, you're, you're, you're looking quite delighted I'm with looking, yourself there. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking fairly pleased with that. Um, it's all, I mean, these, these um, projects are always, they're all volunteer projects. Yeah. So people are giving up their valuable time. It requires a bit of organization to get, you know, somewhere to go, somewhere to stay, uh, get all the permissions, get the radio tags and, and so on. Um, but, you know, I'm always conscious that people are giving up valuable time. And if you're, um, uh, you know, if you're turning up nothing very much, then it's, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's not something I want, want to happen. Yeah, that's, I, th I think, I think what people don't necessarily appreciate unless you're in the position you're in there and I've been in this position myself when we've done training courses which is even worse because not only are they giving up their time but actually paying money to be there as well the pressure that is on you as the trainer to produce something it's it's pretty immense and uh, and I'm quite sure you've probably had that maybe first night where things didn't go to plan and then you really start panicking, you know, or I don't know, do you experience that? Yeah? Yes. Um, yeah, it's always it's always a relief when you do catch something. But, you know, you can turn up expecting to be there for a week or two weeks and the first night is pouring rain uh, and, and you just have to, uh, uh, you know, bide your time. And, uh, you know, but having said that, the southwest of Scotland, the weather has always been brilliant. Ayrshire. Yeah. Southwest Scotland, 
I shouldn't be saying this, encouraging too many people to to go on a holiday there, but you know, it is, <laughs> this uh, um, uh, remarkable uh, the, the the way the weather has been kind to us over the years. Yeah, yeah the the um, the woman behind me in that photograph that's Karina Gukaritz. Oh yeah, I know Karina. Yeah, uh-huh. who's yeah. Uh, on Aran as a you know as a ranger there. Yeah, um, the uh, the woman holding the um, the um, Yagi, the, the antenna on the top left, that's yeah. uh, Zeltia, who's Spanish. Oh, yes. uh, so okay. we've had, had, had quite a few international um, helpers in our um, yeah. And uh, Zeltia, is she in Costa Rica now or somewhere? I can't remember. Zeltia she... did visit Costa Rica last year. Um, but, but yeah, she's, she's actually Galician. She's uh, from right. nor- northwest Spain. Okay. And, uh, yeah, that's where she lives at the moment. Okay. okay, but she was she was working in Scotland for a few years, and uh, yeah, she had great experience. She she actually did an MSC radio tracking um, um, Bechstein's bats in Spain. Okay, uh, yeah. and uh, anyway, uh, yeah, just to continue, Aaron turned out we 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 actually I think over two weeks we we captured at least nine males. Okay. Um, and we also heard other singing males. Um, okay. Some of you will know that um, from sort of middle of summer onwards, from middle of July onwards, males will, male lizard bats will sing, uh, sometimes from a roost, but often on the wing. And they make these distinctive calls, which if you're a teenager, you can actually hear them. Uh, if you're a, a anything above 20, you start to lose your um, high frequency uh, hearing. And uh, so you depend on a bat detector. I'm definitely over the 20. Yeah, I think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit over that as well. <laughs> yeah. So it seemed that uh, Aaron was good, well, parts of Aaron, the, 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 the east area round about um, uh, Brodick and Lamlash was good for male territories and possibly that's where females join them to to mate in the autumn yes uh, yeah but there was no evidence of a, of a nursery roost there so just to um go on a bit um it took us a couple of years to find somewhere else but eventually thanks to um lucy kirkpatrick which who was doing research on soprano pipistrels in the forests of southwest scotland particularly in the Galloway yeah. Forest. Um, she was catching a, a number of other bats when, you know, when they were catching pipistrels. And uh, because she caught a, a pregnant female Lysler's bat, uh, we followed this up the following year or two by going there. And yeah, we found uh, where, you know, where she'd been catching this, uh, the odd Lysler's bat. We found that only something like 500 metres away was a tree roost with uh, uh, with Liza's bats, okay. um, and the number. Well, the following year we went back there again to to to, to follow up, and um, there were something like fifty five bats counted um, okay. coming or going from the from this roost. Um, the tree that we're in since then has actually blown down, and so. We, that's why we went back. I think last time, yeah, I know the last time was 2019. Went down to find out where the, where the bats had gone, and what we found was that they were still around, but they were using more than one roost. There were no longer these 
this large number in this particular tree, which I think was just in a situation where it was, it was getting, uh, you know, it was an excellent warm roost. Um, and uh, otherwise they, they, they were moving around a bit. Um, but the interesting thing we found, and, and you know, this, it was uh, what was then Forestry Commission Scotland, but now Forestry and Land Scotland, um, who have given us a lot of help and, and this sort of thing. Um, uh, in, you know, in the work in these in these projects, they've been very helpful. But uh, they were obviously interested in you know in the, the bats using their their forests. Yes. And whereas, uh, uh, well, basically, what what one of the conclusions I drew from this was that there are within the commercial forest there are patches of sort of semi-natural oak woodland, for example. And that's where the, the bat roosts are. Um, so the, the forests are used extensively for foraging, yep. but they're also dependent on these pockets of uh, old woodland where, you know, the, the right sort of trees where they have, they can use for roosts. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so that's, that's the lot Liza's project, um, basically. And, 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 and- and to be honest, John, I mean that that is that's first of all, that is an immense amount of work. Okay, but quite often in bats, uh, you put in an immense amount of work, uh, but you don't really find out you don't really find out that much new. But you know, to take you right back to the beginning of the thought process here, you know, one or two known roosting locations in the southwest of Scotland and through the work that yourself and your associates and volunteers have done, you've you've pretty much, well, you've very much redrawn uh, the proper distribution for that species based on what you've been doing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's. I mean, we're still still finding new records. What yeah. What's interesting is that there is this. Um, there is definitely a you know, good population in the south and west of Scotland. Uh, most recently, I had a had a, um, detector recording from Isla. So they're out to the, yeah. you know, as far okay. as Isla, out in the west there. Yeah, that's, that's Isla there, I think. It's yeah, with my that's right. yeah. Um, so, you know, they're, they're out in, in the west. And the, the most northerly of this area, actually, I've found in the Trossachs. Okay. But, you just, know, all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, kind of um, there. Yeah. So yes, uh, but I mean, I've been recording bats and you know, listening, looking for bats, listening for bats in in our area in the Stirlingshire and the Trossachs for a long time, and I've only once recorded Lysler. So that shows, yeah. um, you know, they're not common. And other people have, on occasion uh, have found them in Loch Lomond. Um, so that's about the limit. Yep. But what's also interesting, there seems to be a separate small population up in the, the northeast of Scotland, not far from Balmoral. Actually, there, uh, yesterday I had somebody um, who was up there send me a recording that that she had been she had made on a, a couple of devices, which was a good recording of Liza's. So they're they're rare, but there's a there's a little population up there. So you know we're still we're still looking, we're still finding out lots. Yeah, and the thing also is, without us going too deep into this, right, there's not really, if, if you're thinking about between the central belt of Scotland and the northeast of Scotland, Aberdeenshire, for argument's sake, you know, per head of population, 
that's there's not really that many bat workers, and that is an awful lot of land. <laughs> no, it's you know the bat the bat workers are really diluted, you know, up here. Um, but I, I still think it's, uh, at the moment, you know, I'm always keen, happy to be proved wrong. <laughs> but at the moment, my feeling is that it's a real gap. Um, yeah. Okay. The I think I think that the southwest population is really part of the Irish population. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's some genetic evidence to suggest this. Um, there, the um, a researcher in Ireland has has uh, has sampled, has looked into the genetics of um, Liza's bat in Ireland, Scotland, England, and parts of Europe, and it's. She hasn't been able to do that much research, but there's a suggestion that the, the if you like, the English population is related to European. Okay. And the Scottish population is, is more linked with the Irish population. Okay. And in turn, the Irish population is linked with um, the Azores um, noctual wow. bat, uh, you know, which, okay. so which, uh, which may actually just be a subspecies of Lysless. Okay. Uh, at um, the moment, okay. it's uh, it's regarded as a species, and probably that's that's important for its conservation. If it's if it's still regarded as a unique um, bat in, in the Azores, then uh, um, you know, and that's that's better for it, I think. But anyway, yeah, there's it's an interesting, um, uh, you know, it's an interesting distribution, and um, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, I say, we we continue to to learn. Okay, no, it's just fascinating, and I obviously people like myself, you know, we, we watch from afar, and uh, you know, and we just go, wow, okay, what what's what's going to pop up next, uh, you know, during these things, and and just out of interest, I mean, I, I, you mentioned briefly uh, Dumfries and Thrive. Um we were at Thrive, um three weeks ago. It was, and we were doing some catching there in association with something. And over the years, we've only ever caught two Lyslas at three so far. Uh, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, we caught six Nictilus, and they were all they were all noxials. They were all noxials. Um, but but we have had, you know, two Lyslas in the hand in the last kind of five years or so. Um, but yeah, but it is really interesting. I mean, you know, there's this area down here, kind of Thieves, kind of Castle Douglas, where my pointer is now. Yeah, and and where you're working uh, is is just to the west of that, I think. Yeah, it's uh, it's at yeah. the top of that indent here. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of there. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's definitely some sort of transforming. Yeah, something. Yeah something there, you know, <laughs> it's just fascinating. Lyslas seem to be much more associated with, in Scotland anyway, with, with, with uplands. Um, okay. And uh, and noctual with lowlands, there's maybe something in that. Yeah, because um, Ca Ca Castle Douglas, that, that would very much be described as lowland to my yeah. mind. Yeah, well, that's it. The, you know, the, the river, what's the river, comes out of Priest. Oh, goodness. The Annan? Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And you know that sort of area, the Annan, and yeah. as far as Castle Douglas, does seem to be um, 
you know, a stronghold. It's more, it's, there's more nocturnal than lies, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, but it is, there is a sort of transition. Um, one of the, there was a, there was a really interesting study done in the Lake District. Okay. So that's just, you know, south of the border yeah. where, um, where the, the identified both lizards and and noctual, but the lizards were higher up and the noctual were lower down. So there may, you know, there may be a sort of division in in terms of the um, uh, the habitat. But okay. um, I I also think it's just if you look at the distance between Ireland and Scotland, yeah, um, it's, which is yeah, it's not, like not really. too far, yeah. There's yeah. two, two mysteries. Why are there not noctuals crossing into Ireland? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and no, it's not surprising that there's, there's, there, there are um, lizards that be able to fly between the two. Um, I, a friend of mine, well, you, you'll, you'll know uh, um, Claudia Geb- Gebhardt, yes. who's uh, the Scottish bad officer at the moment for Bat Conservation Trust. Well, she had... Um, she had put. Um, it's not easy to get on to Ilse Craig, okay, which is this yeah. uh, the big rock um, yeah. off off air. But uh, Ilse Craig, um, it doesn't have any resident bats. It's a you know big lump of granite, uh, which is which is quarried for, famously for its. Um, uh, uh, curling stones. That's right. It's the curling stones. That's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but uh, and she she had actually put a, a detector, a recording detector there for a few nights. Okay. Not, not managed to catch, you know, get any information. But um, somebody else, I think it was last summer, I did the same thing and recorded Lysla's bat. Wow. Uh, so, so it yeah. does show that they do cross the sea. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's no, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not very far to Arran. I think it's 20, 21 kilometres to Arran from the Ayrshire coast. Yeah. And it's obviously a little bit more than that from Scotland to Ireland. But no, yes. I'm sure they, 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 um, there is travel between the two occasionally. Yeah. And you've got this, you've got this area of land down here beyond Arran. Um, you know, that, that, that's got to that's be entire. Yeah, Kintyre. That, that's... That's got to be interesting as well. Surely. Yes, yes. The thing yeah. is that um, lizards are associated with forests, uh, you know, associated with 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 trees. So you know, yeah. sheltered parts. So um, yeah, and the, 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 there's. I, I was in Kintyre earlier this year, and um, as, as you'll know, <laughs> it's one of the places that that um, beavers have been in, introduced. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. And there's some lovely habitat there, and I'm, I'm sure I haven't investigated Kintyre, but I have had the odd report of lizards from Kintyre. Okay. Um, you know, so yeah, there the, the, the must be movement. Yeah, yeah. Okay, do you mind if we move on from the lizards project now? Because I've got s- yeah. so much more I want to explore with you. Is there anything else you want to say about the project before before we leave? Um, no, I. Obviously, things um, were interrupted by the the pandemic, and so that's why we hadn't been back um, doing um, active stuff in the summer since 2019. Uh, the picture lower left yeah. is a bit, of, a bit of a departure because that's actually 
radio, uh, putting radio tag on whisker bat. Okay. Also, yeah. in, also in the same area, sort of tangential to the Leisler's uh, investigation there. Um, there was a, a reason for um, uh, investigating for forestry and land Scotland, whisker bats roosting in, in, a, in a building there. Okay. And, and this was part of that. And this summer, we, we again, it was a volunteer project, but uh, we uh, radio tracked whiskers, which were <laughs> a complete contrast to Lysers, where we're driving up and down forestry roads. I mean, the Lysers in the, in the, the valley that we found them, yeah, um, which is actually east of the Cree Valley. Um, they travelled you know, six, seven kilometres in a, in a night from their roost. Yeah. Um, but but these whiskers, um, <laughs> they were travelling no more than well. The, the, we we put tags on three whisker bats, and they didn't travel outside an area of about forty hectares. Yeah. Uh, so you know, less than half a kilometer. Yeah. In total area, the three of them um, uh, using trees and and buildings as well. But uh, that was com- completely different and a, a very nice uh, way to spend a week this summer. I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't use as much petrol. <laughs> no, absolutely not. We were able to sit all night in one or two spots and and uh, track these three uh, without driving around. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Look, let's let's go back in time. Okay, how did you get into bats or wildlife generally? And just give us a little bit of, uh, I suppose, your your perspective, your understanding, your memory of the early days with bats getting into it. Because I think people, younger than myself, even okay, because I'm I'm sixteen, believe it or not. Um, there's all these uh, youngsters coming into the bat world today and, you know, they've got their computers, their full spectrum bat detectors, they've got all this training they've got access to, they've got the internet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I know life wasn't like that for me when I started and you started a lot further back before I did. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I've, I've always been, you know, interested in natural history. Um but my interest in bats really started when I was living in Aberdeen. And I was actually, I was working on research on fleas. Okay. Um, and this, so this is mid-70s. And I think, I think, I feel very privileged that I, I've sort of been around from the start of the, you know, surge of the development of, of bat work, particularly volunteer bat, bat work in Scotland. In, in the UK, you know, not just in Scotland, but uh, it started. It really started seriously in um, after 1981. The Wildlife and Countryside Act protected okay. all bat species. Um, so in 1974, I think it was, I first um, encountered Paul Racy. Okay, uh, Paul Racy, you know, probably one of the best known. Um, figures in bat, the bat world and in the UK now retired as a professor, but um, then he was just a young lecturer who had arrived in Aberdeen University. He had done his PhD on bats in I think Cambridgeshire, um, and uh, I was interested in I was working on fleas and I was interested in bat, bat fleas. Okay. So we actually caught 
as my introduction to bats was catching bats from a roost before wildlife and countryside act, I should emphasize. Okay. Catching bats from a roost in order to um, examine them for fleas. Okay. Um, and basically, bats are a lot more interesting than fleas. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. uh, that's what, so I was completely converted to finding out about bats. And this was in the days where uh, um, there wasn't that much known about our common bats. Yeah. Um, and the roost where I helped catch these bats um, was later on in the late 70s, a roost that was used by Sue Swift for her research towards a PhD on the common pipistrelle, as it was known then. Okay. We now know that actually these bats were soprano pipistrelles, but um, we didn't distinguish uh, between the two at that time. It wasn't yeah. until 1990 that they were separated. Um, but uh, her research um, and, you know, particularly using that, observing that roost, the bats coming and going all summer from this roost, uh, she was able to find out a lot about the sort of the basic facts about, you know, the, f the figures like 3,000 midges a night eaten by one pedestrial, three to five kilometres travel for pedestrials in a night, yeah. things like that came from her research, actually. They can go a lot further, but uh, but you know it, a lot of the basic stuff about uh, the common pipistrelles, or the uh, plural now, um, are are down to that um, initial um, pioneering research. Because before 1981, uh, only rarer bats in the UK were given protection. Um, 1981 Wildlife and Countryside Act protected all bats. Now, after that, um, there was a surge in interest in bats, and it was at the, at the time this was Nature Conservancy Council, you know, what's now three different country um, organizations, government organizations, was, was all one Nature Conservancy Council, NCC. Yeah. And they encouraged the development and formation of, vol of volunteers, bat groups to support what they realized would be a big task ahead of them in um, helping, you know, helping to conserve these bats, which commonly, you know, live in people's houses. Yeah. And so it was, you know, moving from uh, an organization which was largely responsible for nature reserves to an organization that recognized that there would be all this, um, uh, you know, all this work for them to, um, you know, to, to deal with the public in the in you know, in their own houses, yeah. and so that's why groups were encouraged. And um, by then, 1978, I moved to um, uh, well, this 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 region. I moved from Aberdeen down to um, this, the Central Belt, and I started getting interested in bats locally. Then, uh, being a young teacher. And with a young family, I had you know a lot, a lot on my plate. Um, but uh, but 1984, Central Scotland Bat Group started up. This was this was in the days when Central Region was an administrative region. That was Stirlingshire, Clackmannanshire, Falkirk, 
That's right, because they are now the local authorities and what previously been the local authorities. There was a point in time where we had, for example, up in Aberdeenshire, we had Grampian region and we had Highland region and, as you say, Central Central region. So that's why, you know, that's where the name came from, Central Scotland Back Group. We weren't the first. The Fife Back Group and uh, Lothian's Back Group claimed to both claimed to be the first in Scotland. In Scotland, you know, there were others in England or Wales. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that's why I think if you go back to the photograph, yeah, I can do um, that. Yeah, the top left thing that's 1984. Me and David Bullock, who was one okay. of the people that started up the the Fife Back Group. Yeah, um, he was he was uh, St Andrews University at that time, um, um, and and this is. The first place I saw bats it, when I came down um, to work in this area um, was underground in the winter, and this is the Aberfoyle Tunnel. Wow. Uh, yeah. It's a, a 160 meter long tunnel in a in a um, former slate quarry, um, and it's a hibernating site uh, for bats. Only a few bats, but. Um, I went there with uh, a guy called Carmen Placido, okay. who, in spite, in spite of the name, is a good Scotsman. Okay. Uh, obviously, obviously with Spanish ancestry somewhere. But right. uh, Carmen was the man that that first recorded Natter's bat in Scotland in the 20th century, and that was winter of 1971-72, when he found he was he was joining cavers, and he was looking for bats. Uh, so he was one of the very few people in Scotland looking for bats at that time in the 70s, early 70s. Um, so he found Natter's bat in this cave. And on the strength of that, it became a, sorry, this tunnel, I should say. Um, it became an, a nature reserve uh, under the responsibility of um, Scottish Wildlife Trust at that time. It's it's forestry, um, forestry and land Scotland owned property and in the past years it moved it went back to the responsibility of um, FLS. Yeah. Um, um, am, I, am I right in saying that this was the first site in Scotland anyway that was actually you know recognized as a protected bat uh, yeah. reserve if you like yeah I mean there was nothing else like that up here. No. Uh, is that no, correct? As I say, the, the, the um, SWT, SWT were responsible for putting a grill okay. on the on the front of it, which had padlocks, you know, obviously to keep people out, but allow bats to fly in and out. And we, we uh, well, the bat group um, still uh, every winter goes to check on the bats yeah. Usually once or maybe twice in February in the uh, in the year, and it's not. I think the most we've ever had, we never had double figures. So uh, that's how difficult it is to find bats in in hibernation in Scotland. We've, um, I think, nine is the is the the, the highest number, and we get Natra's bat, brown long-eared bat, and the Benton's bat in there. Yeah, um, yeah. I so think on the on the on the one occasion, and I only have. Been there once, I think. Uh, yeah, and I think on that one occasion, it was uh, a brown long year and a couple of dobbies, I think, we had that time. Um, but that's probably gone back maybe 15 years ago when I was 
there. You, you, I was there with you and a few other people. It was a Central Scotland back group arranged thing. But yeah, yeah. Fascinating. So what happens after that then? So you, you visit this you visit this site with the David Bullock. Um, you're down here. You've started Central Scotland Back Group. Uh, yourself and a few other people started the back group. Is that right? Um, yeah, there were just actually just four of us started it in 1984. Um, but uh, you know, it developed into a small a small group of people, and we did all the sort of usual things that back groups do. You know, education in a, a small way and. Uh, publicity for bats, gathering information on on where bats are roosting, uh, adv advising people um, with bats in their houses and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the back group still is still going, um, and uh, you know we we maybe not done so much actively in the in recent years, but uh, um, yeah, and it's uh, still a, a, a good um, active back group. Yeah, and. Back and again, this will be something that uh, younger people probably won't appreciate. But back then, when you've got the lights of Central Scotland, Fife, Lothian's back group, all doing kind of their own thing, I suppose. The Bat Conservation Trust doesn't exist at this point initially. Yeah. No, the, it, it was only formed 1990. Um, so what happened was that. Um, there were back groups that formed all over all over the UK, and I think you know it was up to eighty or ninety different back groups. And what happened was there was a, a loose organisation called Back Groups of Britain, which had sort of divided into regions, and people from the regions came together to have meetings. Um, you know, all developing back conservation, um, and there were. There were a couple of um, trusts, Fauna and Flora Preservation Society. I think it's, I'm not sure what it's called now, okay. um, but it still exists, but it's Fauna and Flora. They, they, they provided uh, money for a, a bat officer. And then um, Vincent Wildlife Trust also provided, um, you know, funded a couple of bat officers. And, you know, they were there to sort of service the back groups and and you know develop conservation uh, and it wasn't until 1990 that the back conservation trust was formed and has sort of taken over um the, being the umbrella for uh, the you know the volunteer back workers yeah yeah as well as obviously promoting all sorts of conservation projects yeah yeah so that's, that's the history of it. And, yeah. and you know, again, today people perhaps don't realise that communication was very different then. So you're, yeah. you're showing um, front covers of Scottish Bats. Yeah. Um, Scottish Bats was a, a journal, we call, we call it, um, yeah. which... I've got some here, actually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll bring back some happy <laughs> memories for you, I'm sure. <laughs> well... Um, yeah, and uh, the, the, this was a journal that um, people could, you know, put notes, pa small papers, short papers, the sort of thing that wouldn't go into, um, you know, proper academic journals, but uh, yeah. but people could publish publish information. 
now it's been overtaken by the internet. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, it, the, the, there isn't such a, a demand for it, which is why there has, hasn't been um, one of these. I think we went up to volume six. Um, yeah. There hasn't yeah. been anything since volume six. You can still get get to these. There's some really interesting stuff, I believe. Yeah. Um, and you still get to that through the Bat Conservation Trust website. That's right. I, I was actually double checking this morning that that link was still there, and uh, they've put it. They've now got the British Bats Journal. I think that's what it's called. Uh, but as a preamble to that, I suppose they've got Scottish Bats, and I think one other series of publications that are on the same page. And if you click on the Scottish Bats one, folks. You can look at all of the, as John said, six issues, I think. It's the, the all of the content of the six issues of those journals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean it takes it you know, it takes quite a lot, lot of time <laughs> to uh, to compile these and organize these. And 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 that's really, you know, it's a, it is a bit of a shame, but that's really why um, you know it's not really it's not um had any subsequent volumes is that uh, you know modern communication has taken over we also used to have uh, the back group had its own newsletter which hasn't yeah. appeared for a few years it was called northern natura yeah that's and, right i remember that yeah yeah uh, and, and you know again the you know facebook page has taken over from from that because people can just put up information uh, on these you don't we don't any longer depend on seeing things in print. So things have changed a lot. Yeah, yeah, uh, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. I want to, oh, yeah, sorry, go for it. Yeah. I'm no, just no. going to, you know, going back to the um, the front covers of uh, um, the uh, Scottish Bats, uh, the artwork was always done by a good friend of mine, David McRae. Yeah. And David McRae was a, well, he was a brilliant artist, in my opinion. Um, but he was also you know, a really keen naturalist. Um, he, he, he actually, he followed, you know, for example, he, he had a, a good friend who, who um, went, Doug Scott, who was a famous climber uh, and went on expeditions with Chris Bonington um, in the Himalayas and um, also in South America. He, David was there just to um, to be an artist to to, to draw. He wasn't a mon- wasn't a mountaineer, but he was a good friend of mine, as I said, and he was very interested in bats. And he was one of the um, the bat workers in the nineteen nineties. And unfortunately, um, he was um, he caught in um, what we call bat rabies. That's European bat lysivirus. Um, from a Debenton's bat in and died in 2002, yeah. November 2002. So that's nearly 20 years ago. Um, and uh, so this was a you know a horrible thing to happen. We didn't know that bat rabies or EBLV was present in the UK until then. Yeah. Um, and uh, we we knew that. People knew that it was in the continent, um, and in fact, from 1996, I was I'd been vaccinated against rabies for handling bats. But 
many people, including David, didn't perceive that there was a risk in Scotland. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that's why um, he was actually demonstrating, he was showing Debenton's bats to people who worked for SNH, Scottish Natural Heritage at that time. Yeah. Um, uh, because, you know, to show them something different from Pipistrales, which is the, you know, the bat that you're most likely to encounter. Um, and the same same bats that he was handling at that time, um, I had actually caught with him and handled too uh, on a previous occasion. Um, so he was just very unlucky. He didn't go to the doctor in time. And unfortunately, um, the virus, once it gets hold of your nervous system, yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, but, 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 back, but back then, John, um, you know, I mean, I was I was an established bat worker myself back then, okay, and and none of us none of us had rabies on our radar at all up until that point. You know, it yeah. just wasn't something that got spoken about. We didn't wear gloves. Uh, we used to take bats into public bat bat talks and pass them out to children. And I mean, the world. The world up until this point that you're describing, um, you know, it's very, very different to what it is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's um, yeah. Well, although it's you know it's tragic what happened to David, it's thanks to David that we know the risks. Yeah, and you know it makes it, you know it from an abstract concept of. Yes, it's possible to catch rabies and you can die from it. To actually having, you know, somebody that, that unfortunately did that, um, it makes a big difference. And as a result, in Scotland, I mean, I, I to to go to another area of my uh, involvement with bats, I've been uh, advising as a uh, the public as a what's called a bat worker in for for first of all. NCC Scotland, and then it was called Scottish National Heritage, and these days it's um, Nature Scott. Same organisation, just yes. changed its name. Yes. Um, but Nature Scott recognised from 1981 that it was important to ensure that people who were giving advice on bats for, on their behalf were properly trained and properly covered, and you know followed all the um, appropriate health and safety um, procedures and so on. So Nature Scott actually from, from soon after that, sorry, 2002 um, was when David died. Um, from soon after that, the, the bat workers became civil servants. When, yeah. when, we, when we were doing casework for uh, Nature Scott, uh, we were actually employed by them. So yes. I think that's, that was a very, sensible procedure because then it it meant that you know that, that nature's got had much more control uh, in it's not the case in England and Wales as I understand it it is still largely volunteers that are used um, uh, in the, in the same way but uh, but yeah since since 2002 thanks to David we actually get paid <laughs> paid <laughs> all rate and uh, expenses for uh, you know for our work and and um, you know, all praise to Nature Scott for the way they organise it, because um, yeah. they still recognise it's an important, it's very important PR 
for for conservation in general, but also you know for bat conservation to have uh, people that can uh, go in and advise people um, in their homes when they have a problem or think they have a problem with bats. Often, yeah. often it's just um, some that you need to know a bit more about them. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, no, nobody has to have bats in their home if they're a problem to them for one reason or another. And uh, and nature's got a very pragmatic about this. Yeah, there's a, there's a procedure that we can go through yeah. that yeah. Uh, allows things to happen if they need to happen. But I mean, I, I did that role myself, as you know, for quite a number of years in the Falkirk area and the West Odian area. And yeah, the, the bulk of the time you would go and see a householder and initially they would know nothing about bats. They'd be scared, they'd be apprehensive, they'd be absolutely certain they wanted rid of them. But it was quite interesting. Um, you know, maybe two out of three cases, maybe a little bit more than that. By the time the visit was over, they kind of would change their mind and say, no, actually... It's not as bad as what I thought it was. Um, you would have it was quite it's quite a satisfying thing to be able to do, yeah. And yeah. you still do this now, don't you? I think you, you, I don't, but I think you still do this. And yeah, I, I still yeah. do this. Um, and I also the uh, back sorry, um, nature nature Scott run a bat helpline, yeah. um, which is you know active during the summer months. Um, and the, uh, during the summer when it, when it can be very busy, well, particularly June, July, it can be very busy, people phoning up saying, I, you know, I've discovered bats, there's a bat appeared in my bedroom, what can I do about it, and so on. Um, and uh, so because, the, because the, the full-time staff there can be very busy answering the phone, they, they, they use people like me to, right. uh, to take a, 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 you know, to take a turn at, doing this. So I do it a couple of mornings a week on the on the helpline. Now it's getting very quiet. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it it, um, it dies down late August, September. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, there's still, uh, still things turn up, but, uh, but it can be it can be quite busy. And, and what you're saying about visiting people and advising them on the phone, many of the calls are, you know, uh, are, the problems are resolved by a phone call, put it that way. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's often just reassurance information. Um, uh, but there are, you know, there are also situations where you say, right, well, send somebody out to look at this. And, you know, if it's a problem, we can make sure that you get a license and stop the bats coming back another year and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but, I mean, this year I've had one of these situations where I, I did the visit as well as answer the phone somewhere in Fife. Okay. And and um, and the woman started out being determined that she would um, exclude the bats and so they went, didn't come back next year. But by the end of the time I was there, she was saying, oh, I really don't know what, what I'm going to do. Um, I don't really know whether I should stop them coming back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a situation where... where uh, they were above the son's bedroom and they were keeping him awake at times in the summer. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I just, uh, yeah, I I look back on that uh, period when I was doing that kind of stuff and, uh, yeah, I, I 
yeah, there was some very nice uh, scenarios like what you've described there. Um, now and again, you would have the total opposite, no matter what you did or what you said, you were never going to change the person's mind. And you just had to, you just had to accept that. Um, but uh, yeah. So also in the more recent years, uh, I think since, uh, well, since you became, uh, well, since you uh, stopped being a biology teacher, and I suppose you were the master of your own time a little bit more, uh, you started doing a lot more overseas visits. And I know you've got a very strong connection with and affection for Poland. In fact, am I right in seeing that you tried to learn Polish at some point? Or am I misremembering that? Or uh, No, I do. Um, I did... I did learn Polish. Um, okay. right. The problem is, if you're not if you're not in a country, you're not speaking it, you forget it. So I did actually go to conversational uh, classes in in um, in Glasgow for a, um, for a few years, uh, but it took took a lot of time off my time, and yeah. uh, um, unfortunately, I don't continue that. But no, I can I can I can say the odd sentence in Polish. Yeah. You know how to order a beer in Poland. Oh, also. well, that's one of the first things you learn, yeah. <laughs> anyway, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, well, Poland. And, I, yeah, this, yeah. As, you, as you've explained, um, yeah. it was only when I left teaching that I had the freedom to to do things uh, with bats that I, you know, that my restricted uh, school year and school timetable prevented me from doing, put it that way. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, because one of the things that I would have always I was wanted to do was go to one of these European conferences, which were always um, August, just about the time that schools were going back. Of course, yeah. And so the first one I went to um, was in uh, 2005 in Galway, um, and. Uh, it's not, it's not well, I've got to be slightly cruel here, perhaps, but that's not exactly the kind of overseas exotic uh, destination that I was expecting. Well, but, no, but this led to Poland, you see. Okay, um, okay. Yeah. Uh, because uh, Dr. Tomasz Kukurowicz, yeah. to give him his proper title, or Tomek, uh, yeah. as, as I know him, um, he had in, in the um, 90s. He was doing his PhD on bats, and this was partly supervised by Paul Racy in Aberdeen, okay, and partly by um, University of, of Warsaw. He'll kill me if I get it wrong. I can't remember if it's Warsaw or Krakow, but I think it's Warsaw. Um, okay. uh, so, but he did research over here. So he was he stayed in Aberdeen for a, a couple of years, and he wanted to have captive Dibenton's bats for a short time to study them in a laboratory situation. He was looking at their metabolism, the, the, the rate they were using up energy. Okay. Um, uh, so this is, this is what his PhD was on. And so he needed, he needed some captive Dibenton's bats and they couldn't get them in, in Aberdeenshire. And it, time was getting short. He couldn't find you know, a suitable source. So, he, so Paul Racy got in touch with me and Tomic came down and we, I, I found a, a roost of them okay. and he captured some of these, took them away for a couple of months 
And then when he'd finished his research, they were all still fine. He brought them back, released them the same place. Wow. So that's when I first met Tomic. Okay. And I, but I re, you know, I met him again when I went to Ireland. And so re-established, uh, you know, a friendship then. And uh, he had invited me to go to this Nyetaperic in uh, Poland in January 2006 okay. um, to help with the, the counts of the bats underground. Now, this is a just to explain for uh, people that don't know, know about this. Um, this is a tunnel system, which which um, in total is 32 kilometers of tunnel. And these tunnels, an example is shown on the, the, the left there. Yeah. Um, these are concrete sort of egg profile tunnels, very strong underground tunnels that were, um, they were built by the Nazis, they were built by Germans in the 1930s over a couple of years, 1936 to 38. Yeah. mainly, um, as part of the defences against the East. So there were defences against Poland, and they were built within the German border, as it was then. Okay. Um, so there, this was part of Germany. And the, the, the whole complex covers, from north to south, is about nine kilometres. Okay. And so there's a, there's a main tunnel running the whole length of the nine-kilometre and, and there's lots of side tunnels and complexes and, you know, store, big storage rooms and all sorts of things underground. And they had, as well as storing all sorts of materials and military materials, a latterly looted treasures, actually. Uh, but they also had a, a Daimler aero engine factory underground. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and garrisons of soldiers living underground. Above ground, you've got on the top top photograph there, you can see in profile what um, an invader from the east would see. And okay. all you see is a couple of these massive uh, steel cupolas, which would have guns and all sorts of defense, flamethrowers and things <laughs> um, as part of these. And, and this, this line of defences went all the way from the Baltic down to the Czech border. Goodness, so that okay. there were a whole line of these um, defensive uh, bunkers every, probably every half a kilometre, every kilometre, all the way. Right. Um, it was, although that was the idea, it was never completed. Um, it was because by 1938, Hitler decided that... Um, a movable uh, defense system was better. In other words, he put all the effort into tanks rather than uh, an immovable defense border. Okay. Um, so the the area due east of of Berlin was a particularly sensitive area. So this is only about 150 kilometers east of Berlin. Okay. Uh, or 150 kilometers, 150 miles. I can't remember exactly. Um, and uh, so they had this system because because the area was largely, you know, sand to a great depth. They were able to build tunnels about thirty meters down to connect a lot of these um, 
bunkers in this one area. Okay. So this is the area that's now known as Nyetaperek. Yeah. Um, because what happened after, after the war, uh, it was occupied by uh, Red Army. Okay. And uh, it was, had various uses. And in fact, the northern part of the area was a, a Red Army military area. You know, it was forbidden for Poles to go in, into this area. And what I should explain is that um, what happened was that, that um, Stalin kept a big chunk of Poland to the east okay. after the war with the agreement of, of the Allies. Yeah. And, and then a chunk of Germany was taken from Germany and added to, on to the west of Poland. So okay. what was Eastern Germany became Western Poland. Okay. And so it's yeah. now within, the, within Poland. Yeah. And who knows when they started moving in, but, it's, but the bats started moving in definitely uh, from the 70s, uh, and 1980s, it was recognised as a as a reserve for bats okay. in the winter. Yeah. Okay. And so there are now uh, something like 35,000 bats occupy this um, site in the winter. There it, are it, some it, that... it makes it makes uh, the tunnel in Aberfoyle uh, <laughs> seem. <laughs> Well, yeah, there's a, there's a bit of a contrast. And yeah, yeah. So you can understand, when I was able uh, to go there in January, uh, when normally I would be going back to, uh, you know, the, the spring term in school, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I went there and I was just, you know, my mind was, was blown by seeing uh, so many bats. And you'd have yeah. been getting, and for you, you'd have been getting some species that you'd never seen before yeah. as well, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. Well, what you know, the bunches that you can see there yeah. in the photographs, these are these are greater mouse-eared bats, yeah. Yeah. which yeah. we don't have in the UK, apart from one poor individual that turns yeah. up in Sussex every winter. Yeah. Um, and uh, these are these are big noctual-sized bats, um, and there are 25,000 of these in these tunnels yeah, um, yeah. but you can appreciate with a, a complex of 20, 32 kilometers you need a lot of people to count <laughs> them so they are all, in, in january one day they're all counted and they're right. it's, it's all very well organized there are nine teams okay. um, of up to 70 people in total okay. uh, that count different areas within the tunnel system okay. there's a lot of walking underground and involved yeah. um, and uh, you know it takes all, all day sunset to sun sorry sunrise to sunset is the yes. period that we use um, and uh, it's a it's a great international um, uh, event in fact because so many people want to to join in um, I think the biggest number of countries we've had is is 14 different wow. people from 14 different countries wow. all taking part in this. Um, I've been very fortunate to be there every every year since 2005, 2006. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's not, it's not the sort of thing that someone can just rock up to. I mean, you, you've got, you, if you want to go to the site, uh, you've, kind, you've got to arrange to be part of the group. You can, yes. you can't just you can't just turn up on the day un unannounced. Well, <laughs> well, at least I don't think you can, can you? No, uh, um, 
Well, this is part, you know, the part of the, 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 the ongoing management of this site, as, as you can understand, as many people understand, a lot of people are interested in, in World War II history. Of course. And uh, it's, a, it's a great tourist attraction, which brings in money to, the, to a relatively poor area of, uh, of Poland. And so there are, there's summer tourism, and people are wandering, well, no, they're not wandering through, they're, they're guided through the tunnel system because there are hazards in there. You can fall down deep holes and you can, you know, uh, there's a lot of danger in the, in the underground. Um, but there are, there are guided tours all, all summer. But it's from, I think it's middle of October to middle of, um, middle or end of March. Uh, I saw in middle... April. I should I should know these things, but anyway, there's a period when um, uh, they're protect. It's protected for bats only. Okay. Um, but there are still there are what we call bunker men, uh, mainly men, but it can be bunker women as well who visit there all year round okay. and break in uh, to some of the entrances um, that you know that are not easy to get into, but they can get in. Uh, you know, by climbing, all sorts of means, uh, they they get in and they have parties in the okay. underground. Yeah. So they explore, they wander the underground. I can't really explain why that people do this, but there is an attraction for these sort of places. Yeah. Um, I was invited, I think, in two thousand and seven to help with uh, radio tracking in southwest Poland. Okay. Uh, of uh, lesser horseshoe bats and greater mouse ears, um, and that was you know that was a brilliant introduction. But since then, I've been involved in a number of uh, radio tracking projects in the west of Poland with, with mouse ears, but also in the north of Poland near Gdansk, okay. and also in the north northeast uh, on pond bat. Okay. And just as an example, yeah, the, the church shown there, which is a, a you know really interesting um, Eastern Polish building um, up near the Lithuanian border uh, in a town called Yelenievo. Um, this this church had EU money to um, renovate it, and when it was renovated, unfortunately, um, the the um, Roost for pond bat was blocked out, and why this was significant was um, that uh, there are only something like nine known sites for pond bat in Poland, so it's not you know not a common yeah. bat. Okay. Um, so uh, the the research involved finding where these bats had gone because um, actually they opened up again the the, the 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 points where the bats were able to emerge from. Um, and we did find that the, 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 the bats had, some of the bats had gone back, but we also found in the same village um, quite a big bat roost uh, for pond bat. It also, the same house actually had serotines and um, Nathusius pipistrelle. Wow. So three, okay. three species, um, three unusual species for, for Scotland. Um, so what, what you see in the photograph there is bottom left, that's me holding a, a pond bat that was caught uh, from this house okay. and then the, the middle bottom uh, photograph is me what what we did was caught 
a, a number of these and took them back to um, a convenient indoors uh, place where we could uh, put the tags on and then take them back out and release them and radio track after that. And these bats, um, these bats travelled more than 20, 25 kilometres along. Wow, okay, um, right. Uh, river systems, uh, along lakes. Um, and I mentioned that it was near the, the Lithuanian border. And in fact, we, we were crossing the border into Lithuania in the middle of the night and sort of little dirt tracks um, to, to try and find these bats and then coming back again. Um, okay. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, very interesting project. So yeah, that's my that's my involvement in uh, radio tracking in Poland, um, and uh, I say it's what I feel qualifies me to do things like that in in Scotland on a much smaller scale. I have to say. Well, absolutely, absolutely, and it's just uh, fascinating. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here like a, I know I'm pretty envious, you know, <laughs> pretty envious. Uh, so uh, you know. I, but uh, as, as you know, I, I went once I sold Echo's Ecology. That was supposed to be me going into semi-retirement, you know. And, well, that plan totally went pear-shaped. <laughs> so I'm still, yeah, I'm still here working six days a week, but uh, just doing other things instead. But, uh, yeah, I would love to do some of this stuff, to be honest. But Just, just going back quickly to... Um... You know, to explain the photograph on the top left, which yeah. people may not see that clearly, but what you've got there, yeah, you're pointing to yeah. a lot of mouse-eared bats, greater mouse-eared bats. Greater mouse-eared, so. On this, um, there's a patch on the left, actually on the on the concrete, but yeah. the ones um, in the middle are are arranged along this girder, yeah, um, and. This is the sort of thing we're, we're counting. Most of them are, you know, the majority, and certainly in parts of it, are the greater mouse here. But you've also got eight other species or nine other species, um, which we have to distinguish between. You know, we have a um, number of myotis species, barbastels and gray long, sorry, brown long-eared bat, and the occasional serotine. Um, okay. uh, and... Uh, you can appreciate if you've got big bunches of bats there, you've got to make sure that you count the the bats uh, yeah. um, and also count the, the species because you will get more than one species actually, in, you know, cheek by jowl uh, in contact with each other. Yeah. Um, I, so, I would, and I would also imagine you, you can't stand there for hours, right? You, can't, you know, there, there must be an element of... Uh, you know, an element of plus or minus because you won't necessarily see all of the individual bats in some of these clusters. You know, some might be behind others and stuff like that. Well, so, basically, it, it you know it depends on wh where they're actually roosting. Um, but the, the, the rule is that you would count, if possible, on the spot, up to about thirty to fifty in a bunch. But any more than that. We take photographs. Right. When I first went, we went there. We were still using film cameras, and yeah. digital was not, you know, not very developed. Yeah. But now with digital cameras, uh, it's a matter of taking photographs of the, of the bigger groups and counting from a, a 
computer screen um, yeah. at a later time. So yeah, we do get accurate counts uh, that way. Um, but yeah, there will be a there will be a certain percentage error. Yeah. Um, but when you count, I think the biggest bunch has been around about nine hundred to a thousand in one single bunch. That's just amazing, um, isn't it? Uh, and yeah. that you know you can't possibly count that on the spot. And 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 the other thing is disturbance. If you're yeah, standing bats. below yeah. below a group of these bats with and shining torches on them, they do start to be to move. Yeah. They start to become agitated, and <clears throat> and they do. You know that one day that we count them over. Um, by the end of the day, there are quite a few bats flying up and down the corridors, so they are they are disturbed. Um, so yeah, there is a you know there is a, a an inbuilt error in in the method. Yeah. Um, but what what's recently happened um, in the last few years? Sorry, I lose my voice. No, I'm okay. <laughs> used to talking for long periods um, <laughs> these days since I'm no longer a teacher. Um, although. The, the counts took place every January. Yeah. Um, Belgians have organized early winter and late winter counts, okay. not of the whole system, but about two thirds of it. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> and together with, um, together with a lot of uh, little monitoring devices, monitoring temperature and humidity, they're producing computer models to show the, the changes, you know, you can appreciate 32 kilometers of tunnel, it's not all uniform. There are some areas that are much um, more humid, some areas that are drier, and different bat species use, uh, you know, prefer different environments. Of course. Yeah. Um, the, the wettest parts are, are, are the areas that are uh, most popular with the mousy bat, for example. Okay. And the drier and slightly colder areas with uh, barbastels. So the majority of barbastels are found in a different area. Okay. So the, these um, extra surveys in November and March have built up a, a picture of the way that the bats actually move in the tunnel system over the winter. Okay. Um, and one of the big things, big changes is in the beginning of the winter, they're never in large clusters. Right. And okay. By the end of the winter, that's when you have the, the larger clusters. Um, and so, you know, there's, uh, so it's not it's not a static um, system. It's a very much dynamic hibernation okay. system. We're probably going to begin to take things to a close, uh, everyone. Um, as a thank you to John for his time today, uh, we're really pleased to make a donation at John's request to the Bat Conservation Trust. So at uh, some point over the coming days, we'll be making that donation on your behalf, John, and we'll be doing everything yeah. possible to communicate with BCT that although the money is coming from us, it's actually on your behalf. Okay, so <laughs> we will be doing that. And I think also, if possible, uh, we'll ask them to try and funnel it towards something they're doing in Scotland. So that's that's what we'll be doing there, folks. Uh, so, John, that's almost taking us to the end. So what we normally do at the end of the, these sessions is, first of all, I double-check with yourself that there isn't anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't mentioned. 
And then after we do that, uh, I'll then do the goodbyes and then you would then say a final goodbye to our audience. So John, uh, we're almost at the end of the process. Uh, how's it been for you? Not too bad or a nightmare? What do you think? No, I, you know, you, you, it's difficult to shut me up when I start talking about bats. So, you know, I'm quite happy to chat and uh, particularly to you, Neil. Well, thank you very much. And it's been very enjoyable. And I always learn stuff from yourself, John. And, uh, and we probably don't do this often enough, okay? But are you going to the Bat Conference next week? Um, I am, yes, for the first time in person since 2019. Yeah, same as myself. And folks, when you're watching this, it will probably be after the Bat Conference. So we're talking about the Bat Conference in September 2022, okay? Yeah, so I'll see you there and uh, I'll buy you a pint or, or something. All right, I'm quite sure. Uh, is there anything that we've forgotten to speak about or have we covered everything that I think we discussed that we would cover? Uh, no, I, I'm, I think I've, I've talked enough. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this, is what I, but this is what I love about this, right? because as you probably know, um, I get a bit of a reputation for talking quite a lot <laughs> and uh, I'm absolutely... You know, these conversations that I have with the likes of yourself, it it really is, from my perspective, it's really lovely because I, I sit here and uh, I hardly see anything, which is which is wonderful from my perspective. So uh, so thank you. Perhaps, so, that, perhaps I could just say, since you've shown that photograph, just yeah. to explain to people what it's about. Yeah, go uh, for that, it, yeah. Cause, that uh, was actually this, this July, so that was... During the um, well, it was the beginning of the Whisker Bat uh, project. This um, in uh, Dumfrieshire in, G in Galloway, um, and what I'm doing there, I'm not actually tracking a bat. I'm just checking the radio transmitters and also the equipment to see that it all works, um, uh, which is all very very necessary before you go out. Okay. That's, that's kind of the sort of thing I need in my kitchen when uh, Aileen hides the chocolate, you know. <laughs> if, if I could just get a radio tag on the chocolate before she hid it. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. but I, I just, I saw this picture. This was a picture I saw earlier today or yesterday afternoon. And I just, I, I just, I love the colours and what you were doing and the fact you've got a radio receiver here in the Front and you've obviously got your coffee hooked up there, and your, your coffee is important. Yeah. yeah, you've got everything that's important there. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's excellent. Thank you. Right, everybody. So that was a talking bat interview with John Haddo. I hope you uh, enjoyed it. I hope you found it interesting, educational, inspiring. Uh, whatever, whatever you find it, I hope, and I'm pretty certain that you'll have got something out of that. And in a few moments, I'm just going to pass the mic back to John and ask John to say goodbye. And at that point, we'll stop the recording. So, John, if you could say goodbye to our audience, that would be lovely. Thanks very much. Yeah, goodbye to everybody who's watching this. Um, but also to Neil and thanks very much for inviting me.
We hope you enjoyed this Talking Back interview, which is an edited, audio-only version of the original videoed session. The full version, including video, is available via Betability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to betability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you.